Chapter 15. The Regulation of Procurement of Goods and Services by the State The first Entebbe Conference, which ended on the 25th of July 2014, and the Cape Town Conference, which ended on the 24th of November 2015, organized by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and Accountability Now, devoted much discussion to finding ways to prevent or correct the crime of corruption through the regulation of governmental procurement processes and the review of procurements that may be infected with malfeasance or misfeasance. This focus is sensible. Much of the corrupt activity in the world involves abuses in the supply chain of governments and the public procurement systems in place for departments of state as well as state-owned enterprises. These systems come in a variety of forms having different levels of sophistication. Our discussions were led by four outstanding contributors who, in order of appearance, were able to cast light on the topic. Gaby Schaefer, who is President of the Budget Control Institution, or BCI, in Schleswig-Holstein, Germany. Kevin Malunga, who was then Deputy Public Protector in South Africa. Wolfgang Pistel, retired German police official and former anti-corruption ombudsman. And Kato Regan, former Justice of the South African Constitutional Court, whose fixed term of office ended in 2009. She has also served as the inaugural chair of the United Nations Internal Justice Council from 2008 to 2012. Since 2011, she has served as president of the International Monetary Fund Administrative Tribunal and from 2012 to 2018 as a member of the World Bank Sanctions Board. In 2020, she became a member of the African Development Bank Sanctions Appeal Board and since 2016, she has been the inaugural director of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights at the University of Oxford Faculty of Law. Each contributor spoke to their own experiences and in their respective working environments. It is accordingly appropriate to summarize their presentations. Gabby Schaefer as president of the BCI, or Landesrechnungshof, as it is known in Schleswig-Holstein, Schaefer explained that the BCI examines state financial management. It audits both revenue and expenditure, totaling over 10 billion euros. The Landesrechnungshof makes recommendations on the basis of the lessons learned from earlier audit work and provides advice to the audited bodies, to Parliament and to the state government. Its consultant activities have continuously increased and set out significant recommendations for quality improvement, pointing up the potential for savings or increases in revenue. The BCI reports on its audit findings in management letters that are sent to the audited bodies for comment. The BCI submits 
an annual report to the Parliament as well as to the state government. The annual report is also used as a basis for Parliament granting discharge to the state government. The annual report is presented to the public at a press conference. The Landesrechnungshof may at any time submit special reports on matters of major significance to the Parliament and to the state government. The Landesrechnungshof does not only provide advice to the executive and legislative branches by including recommendations for improvement in its management letters and annual reports, but also by commenting, both orally and in written form, on topical issues such as government bills and major procurement projects, or on the course of the annual budget procedure. In Schleswig-Holstein, the BCI employs 69 auditors and 16 administrative officials. There are similar offices throughout the German Federation. The biggest proportion of the staff in Schleswig-Holstein are qualified in public administration, 36%, with 18% in the field of economics, 15% in taxation, and 11% in law. Engineering and social services, including schools, each take up 7% of the staff complement, which is divided into four audit teams. While the BCI has no powers of enforcement, it does enjoy constitutionally guaranteed independence, which it puts to good use to persuade officialdom of the wisdom of the recommendations it makes on budget and expenditure issues which may arise from time to time. Schaefer describes the trade-off involved in being a knight without a sword or a toothless tiger in the following way. This is the price we pay for our independence and our constitutional guarantee. The BCI is a supreme federal authority. As an independent body of government auditing, the BCI is subject only to the law. The status of the BCI, its members, and its essential functions are guaranteed by the Constitution. The BCI is serving and assisting both the executive and legislative branches of government, but not forming part of either of them. The BCI has no executive, legislative, or judicial powers. As we have no powers of enforcement, we have to convince the audited bodies with our arguments. We cannot compel compliance with our recommendations. We need to rely on the professionality and credibility of our arguments. And it works. In past years, the Parliamentary Financial Committee endorsed almost all of our audit findings. The professional skills and talent available in the BCI operating in a German context in which there is near universal commitment to constitutionalism under the rule of law, make it possible for the BCI to act persuasively and to achieve the high number of endorsements of its audit findings, of which Schaefer rightly boasts. As has been ruefully pointed out by Tendai Viti, a leading Zimbabwean opposition politician, in African politics we have constitutions but no constitutionalists. 
rules, but no rule of law. It is unlikely that a BCI in Africa would enjoy the same successes as are enjoyed by the team that Schaefer leads. The levels of skills and specialization she commands are not plentiful in Africa or elsewhere in developing countries. The utility of the work of the BCI is both profound and advantageous, but its transferability to a context in which universal respect for the rule of law is notably absent in public administration is questionable. The affordability of a BCI-type body in the developing nations of the world is also questionable. It is conceivable that BCI employees on the point of retiring or eager to volunteer could be seconded to countries desirous of improving budgetary controls, but the political and logistical obstacles will have to be overcome. They could train and advise on the basis of their experience. Kevin Malunga As the Deputy Public Protector in South Africa, Malunga was well placed to reflect on instances of maladministration in the public administration and state affairs. His office, the Office of the Public Protector, has a constitutional mandate to investigate and report on such matters. It is also empowered to order that appropriate remedial action be taken to correct impropriety or prejudice flowing from instances of maladministration. The Public Protector is an independent Chapter 9 of the South African Constitution institution enjoined to act without fear, favour or prejudice. The constitutionally imparted maladministration mandate is supplemented by the provisions of the Executive Members Ethics Act which in effect makes the public protector the policing and ethics authority in respect of the executive branch of government. This act is intended to keep the activities of the executive branch of government squeaky clean in an effective and efficient way through swift investigation of complaints by opposition politicians. A good recent example of this is the complaint of money laundering lodged by the former leader of the opposition, against the current president, whose campaign fundraising solicited a large donation from a well-known crook, the late Gavin Watson, head of Basasa, a logistics company known for its abuse of the procurement system in the Correctional Service Administration of South Africa. The donation was also alleged to be one that unlawfully put the president at risk of a conflict of interests due to Busasa doing business with his government on an ongoing basis. As to the investigating of allegations of money laundering by or on behalf of the President, it is apparent from the Act that the task of enforcing members' ethics is that of the public protector. The Code of Ethics contemplated in the Act requires that the President meets all the obligations imposed on him by law. He has taken an oath of office which requires him to obey, observe, uphold, and maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic, which obviously cannot be done by indulging in criminality or committing breaches of constitutionally imposed 
specific obligations to avoid the risk of conflict of interest. The Act serves the constitutional values of openness, accountability and responsiveness by requiring that the public protector report on any complaint within 30 days or such reasonably extended period as is appropriate in the circumstances. The Secure in Comfort and State of Capture reports of the public protector concerning illegal expenditure at the Nkandla country seat of the Zuma clan and the matters of state capture currently under investigation before the Zondo Commission of Inquiry respectively are reports which could not have seen the light of day had the public protector not been given the wide jurisdiction conferred by the Act to, in essence, keep members of the executive honest. Criminal charges were laid on the basis of the Secure in Comfort report, but no prosecutions have followed yet, and many more are likely to arise from the process triggered by the State of Capture report. The public protector is obliged by the Act to investigate complaints of the kind made by the Leader of the Opposition. The Act also specifies that nothing in it shall prevent or delay a criminal prosecution. This clearly implies that the investigation of criminal conduct falls within the ambit of the mandate of the public protector. The finding by the public protector adverse to the president on the money laundering complaint has made its way to the courts on judicial review with success. An appeal to the constitutional court is pending. It will elucidate the powers of the public protector further. For the purposes of deciding whether the risk of a conflict of interest exists, the highest court will grapple with the notion that the fundraising in what was called the CR17 campaign put sufficient distance between the candidate and the funding. The Office of the Public Protector is an institution of state that Parliament has nominated to police the ethics of the executive branch of government and criminal conduct is included in the mandate so given. The fact that the currently incumbent public protector has allegations of incompetence and dishonesty swirling around her head does not mean that the functions of her office must be suspended or not called upon to fulfil its functions. If the public protector is suspended pending an investigation of her fitness for office, her deputy will take over and the work of her office will continue. Nobody wants a suspected money launderer as president of a country for a minute longer than the law requires. Hence the Act's 30-day reporting requirement. Even the risk of a conflict of interest that is involved in accepting a well-concealed donation via the CR17 campaign from a dodgy character who has amassed great wealth via the criminal abuse of the public procurement system is arguably intolerable in a functional democracy under the rule of law. All the more so when it is widely known and well publicised that the Special Investigations Unit recommended the prosecution of the donor company, Busasa, more than 10 years ago. Malunga was also able to cite examples of the reports that the public protector has prepared pursuant to the exercise of her mandate.
His detailed presentation was well received and is an appendix to the written version of this book. The section on procurement-related complaints is of particular relevance to the topic now under consideration. The appendix will not form part of the audiobook as it does not lend itself to oral communication. Any listener particularly interested in the work of the public protector can download the appendix for free by visiting the website www.accountabilitynow.org.za and downloading it from the Chapter 9 page of the website. At the time that Malunga spoke in 2014, the public protector was advocate, now Professor Tuli Madonsela. Her term of office ended in 2016 and she was succeeded by a person handpicked by President Jacob Zuma to take her place. Madonsela was a remarkably good public protector, her willingness to go out on a limb to uphold constitutional values and discharge her mandate properly, saw her reach the Time magazine top 100 influential people list in April 2014, shortly before Malunga delivered his paper in Intemi. The Time list singles out the activism and innovation of thinkers, artists, visionaries, philosophers and scientists in making its selection. The magazine seeks people who, according to the magazine, are using their ideas, their visions, their actions to transform the world and have an effect on a multitude of people. Madon Saylor's office released a statement in which she acknowledged the accolade. Like several other accolades that have been bestowed on me, I regard my inclusion in the Time 100 as an acknowledgement of the selfless efforts of the public protector team at large, she said. She went on to say she hoped the award would alert governments to the potential of this institution as a partner in promoting good governance, thus strengthening constitutional democracy. Her successor, Advocate Busisiwi Mkwabani, has been accused by the official opposition in South Africa of being incompetent and dishonest. There are proceedings pending against her for her removal from office. While it is so that Madonsela was a breath of fresh air, it is so that her office was guilty of scope creep during her term of office of seven years, which is not renewable. The work required to deal with allegations of maladministration is very different to a corruption investigation. Strictly speaking, upon finding evidence of any crime, except in an investigation under the Executive Members Ethics Act, the Office of the Public Protector should refer the investigation to the Criminal Justice Administration to investigate and to prosecute if there is a case to answer. Owing to the capture of the Criminal Justice Administration by the Zuma Patronage Network during Madonsela's term of office, the option of referring on criminal matters was closed to her. Instead of turning a blind eye to crime and sticking strictly to matters involving maladministration, 
she investigated as the examples given by Malunga illustrate. After her term of office ended, Maroncella did draw attention to the fact that the skill set required for the investigation of corruption is different to that required for maladministration. The latter involves capacity constraints, the inability to work as required due to lack of training, negligence and activities with unintended consequences. Corruption, on the other hand, is deliberate. The differences between the modern sailor era and that of her successor afford a good illustration of the old truism that any system is only as good as those who lead or make it function. Wolfgang Pistol In Schleswig-Holstein, the Office of the Anti-Corruption Ombudsman exists to protect whistleblowers. The system it operates is a great way to encourage whistleblowers to come forward in the knowledge that their identities will be protected by the Ombudsman. The problem identified when the office was set up was the under-reporting of corruption, particularly in procurement situations and in the building industry in general. The whistleblowers, fearing exposure, repercussions, loss of their jobs and the terrors of the witness box in a criminal court were understandably reluctant to come forward. Once the ombud was put in place and properly introduced to society, whistleblowers took advantage of their guaranteed anonymity to make reports to him. The next step in the process was for the ombud to make investigations with a view to establishing malfeasance. Often the paper trail, or the absence of any warning to the corrupt, would enable the ombud to establish a case for the police to investigate without them or the accused ever finding out about the initial tip-off from the anonymous whistleblower. Once again, the system is only as good as the ombud. The practice of allowing a recently retired chief constable to take up the independent position of ombud is a salutary one. Not only is there a wealth of experience to draw on, he knows the police personnel with whom he has to deal, and has experience in the field of finding proof of corruption. As corruption is a crime committed in secret against victims who are not even aware of it, the task of establishing a provable case is a difficult one. The inside information that an undetected whistleblower is able to give to the ombud can be invaluable to investigators and prosecutors who are tasked with seeking a conviction. Pistol shared statistical information that suggested that the introduction of the ombud created a marked improvement in the rate of detection and conviction of corruption. Critical to the success of the office is the trust that the ombud is able to build with the public. Once the independence of the office is accepted as a given, it becomes easier for those in possession of sensitive information and even those who merely suspect something is amiss to come forward anonymously to the ombud to take up their concerns in a manner that does not prejudice them. 
The traditional lines of whistleblowing are short-circuited and the horrors that so many whistleblowers endure are obviated. The critical element for success is the capacity and integrity of the ombud to observe confidentiality and to act independently. Cato Regan Justice O'Regan has worn many hats in her illustrious career. She attended the Cape Town Conference to share her experiences at the World Bank with delegates. World Bank is a lending institution which makes loans for huge development projects around the world. It has a sanctions scheme in place which requires that those to whom it lends money must account for every item of expenditure connected to the loan. The accounting takes place in the form of detailed vouchers for all expenses incurred in the execution of the project to which it relates. The sanction is this. If the borrower and its contractors are unable to provide a credible and complete paper trail of their expenditure toward the execution of the project on a monthly basis, the World Bank simply stops advancing money and, if there is no accountable explanation for the failure to so provide, it blacklists the culprits. The result of being blacklisted is that the World Bank finance is not available to those blacklisted either temporarily or permanently. The system bypasses the usual channels completely. There's no need to prove malfeasance of any kind beyond the failure to account to the satisfaction of the bank. No double dealing, no corrupt payments, no malfeasances need be proved. The flow of tranches of the loans in question simply dries up when the accounting required does not take place. It is open to governments, lenders and procurers of goods and services to agree a similar system with those with whom they enter into procurement contracts. Creating the political will to do so involves the derailing of the gravy trains that feed off the malfeasance in procurement throughout the world. It is nevertheless instructive to see how effective the system of sanctions introduced by the World Bank has been in stamping out corrupt activities. It is clear that the contractors prefer the prospect of return business in the future above the prejudice of being blacklisted. And so they should.